0: okay. I guess, I guess I'm doing this. You know, this, uh, talking about books thing, which is what I, what I want this podcast to be. This is something I've, I've done before. I've tried it before and I could never really find, it's it's sad to say, I could never really find the precise formula. It's sad to say because it, it shouldn't have to have a precise formula. You know, I would get to the end of a book and go, okay, I'm going to talk about the book, and then I would get wrapped up in the whole process of the notes. You know, what? How many notes do I need to have? How do I prepare for this? And, and that took all the fun out of it. The whole point of it was to be a talk about the books that I'm reading. So I'm going to try to combat that this time by... Making this very informal. In fact, I'm not going to worry about recording when I finish a book. I'm going to do this on a regular basis. I don't know what that's going to look like right now. You know, podcasts. There's always the assumption. I say, I guess that uh, it would be every week, but I don't know that uh, it's going to be that interesting. You know, what happens if I have a a dead week or have some. I don't read much. Am I supposed to just come on here and talk about that? Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. Maybe it's every two weeks. Maybe it's once a month. I don't know. We're going to find the regularity as we go forward. And just like as I'm trying to find the purpose of this introduction as we go along. There is no structure to this. In fact, the rambling, which you will experience if you are lucky, (laughs) it's is actually the feature. I want to ramble about the books. I want to talk about what I've been reading. And I'm particularly going to focus on fiction, I think. Because when I get into nonfiction, I get into the have the notes and make sure you present this and do this in this order. And it becomes the opposite of what I'm trying to do here. So what I'm trying to do is actually come into these without any notes and to just talk about what fiction books I've been reading, what my thoughts about them are, and in some way, I'm hoping that that will, every once in a while, inspire you to go pick up one of these books or to pick up any book. You know, maybe I'm talking about one book and it reminds you of another one and you go and you pick that one up. That's cool. You know? I'm calling it semi-literate because, partially, number one, it's the name that I used before, but also because it's kind of a self-depreciating humor. You know, I don't want to come in here and pretend I'm some literary professor. I'm just someone who likes reading books and likes to talk about what I've been reading. But I also think, in a way, I didn't intend this when I first came up with the name, but now that I think about it more... It does also insinuate culture, current culture. This move that's been going on for probably hundreds of years for society to slowly keep inching more and more towards semi literacy. Reading is not something that's common anymore, which is really, really sad. Because reading has been one of the most enriching experiences in my life. I think that there's this, uh, there's a lot of associations with reading that people, that put people off. Number one, there's a time investment. Oh, How long is it going to, it's going to take like 12 hours to read that thing? Ugh. Or the idea of like just sitting and reading words on a page and, No images and no sound and no nothing. I get that one. I mean, to be honest, when when it comes to fiction, I typically, like the first time through, actually with a lot of books, the first time through, I listen to it as an audiobook first. It's easier for me to squeeze that into my day. It's not necessarily because I get bored with reading on the page, though sometimes it is like that. We we have to be a little bit honest with ourselves. It is a little bit like that. You know, the same same things that are affecting everyone else are affecting me. But it's also it's just kind of fun when you get a good audiobook, especially fiction. You get like a good good reader, which we'll talk about. A good narrator, I guess is the way I should say it. We'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about one of the books I'm reading. But uh I think It's a good way to go through a book the first time and go, hmm, was that any good? And if it's good, then I will go back and actually read it. I will actually sit down and put it in front of me and take notes and read through it, even with fiction. I don't take as many notes when I do fiction. Typically, it's just like, whoa, that's a really cool phrase right there. Whereas with nonfiction, obviously, it's it's a completely different experience. But my general hope is that we can combat this slow march (laughs) towards extinction, uh, towards illiteracy or semi-literacy, by just recapturing the enjoyment of books. When I say that they enrich my life, I don't mean just, you know, like nonfiction books, they teach me a lot of things, I learn a lot of stuff. But fiction books have the ability to to move you in ways that are different than any other medium, and that's not to say that they are supreme over all mediums because it really doesn't. There is no supreme medium. It is what story is being told, and whether it fits with the medium. You know that, like you take a movie like Eight and a Half, Fellini's Eight and a Half extraordinary film one of my favorite films of all time that's not something you can do the same way in a book and at the same time you take books that are extraordinary and then the movie is kind of meh like I think uh, I Am Legend was one of those, the book is really good and the movie is really a C student And they're so different, they change so much. I think that's why the movie was not as good as the book, is because some of the best parts about that book were the idea of being confined to that house. That little suburban home. So, when I talk about books being an extraordinary medium, I mean, they're one of many extraordinary mediums. You know, a book is never going to be the same as an album. Now, all of these things, when I say all these things, in, my, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking like, wouldn't that be cool to try to make a book out of an album or try to make an album out of a book, which I mean, kind of, you, you've seen a lot of that, you know, like how, how much Led Zeppelin is about Lord of the Rings a lot. <laughs> so when I say that, I'm, I'm acknowledging that like crayons, there are many different colors and books are. One of those colors, you know, it's a red or a blue. It's just how can you how can you do anything without that color? And I think that's one of the things as we move towards this semi-literacy that we're missing. We're missing some color. We're missing that that red or that blue. It's, I mean, it's really hard to draw a sky without a blue crown. So my hope is that we can capture. I mean, within this show, but I also mean within the context of society as a whole that we could recapture some of the fun of books because there is something about the process of reading a book. And maybe, I may, maybe before we even go into the books I'm reading maybe I should explore that a little bit. What is it about reading a book that makes it different? There's a lot of comparisons, even I did it right there between books and movies because we often make books into movies. But, as far as mediums go, they're pretty different, you know, visual in the sense of you're watching something passively and then reading, which is more of an active activity, which also uses your eyes, but in a completely different way. It's using the language centers of your brain, whereas uh I guess movies are using the observational observationable what's that observational centers of your brain. But I think if you're going to compare two mediums that I think are closest, or the medium that is the closest to books, it's probably serialized television. And the reason for that is uh, you have to take you have to take out of account the, to some degree, the idea of a binging a show, sitting down and watching all of it at once, because in that way, it's much closer to a movie. Whereas if you watch television the way it was originally intended, where you're getting an episode at certain increments, you know, whether it's uh, every week or maybe a couple times a week, that's closer to reading a book. Because the thing about a book, the the reason that book stands out as a singular medium to me is because of the time involved in reading it. And I don't mean just, you know, the 12 hours it takes to read it. I mean, I read for an hour today, and now I'm going to go 24, 25, 26, 28, 48 hours before I dive in again for maybe a half hour. You're walking away from the story. You're walking away from the experience and taking it with you and living with it. And it's sitting with you, kind of like television when it was separated by weekly episodes I can I can remember watching the first season of True Detective on HBO and the group of friends I was with at that time. Every week after we watched the episode for the whole week, anytime we got together, we were hanging out, you know, I was smoking cigarettes back then, so we'd be outside smoking cigarettes, and we were talking about what do you think about this? Well, what if this what about this theory? And what about this? And it was that time between the episodes that made the experience of that, watching that, valuable in a way that I, I know there's a lot of criticism of the second season of True Detective, which yes, wasn't as good, but I don't remember, did they drop all those episodes at once? Because I feel like if they did, maybe that contributed. I feel like uh, sometimes uh, Stranger Things suffers from that. This, there's no, there's no time to breathe it. When you can just pound through it all. I don't know. It's just when something comes out, I try to actually spread it out. I'll watch just one episode a day. You know, it's not as much as before, but still that helps. But in that way, it's like a book. I tend to go back to the book every day. I don't pick up a book once a week. So I think that experience is one of the things about a book that makes it singular. I also think the time that it takes for the author to put the book together. And as someone who's been trying for a very long time to write a novel, I understand that process. Well, I understand the struggle of that process. I don't understand yet the success of that process. It's not easy. You know, I th- you look at people like Stephen King and you think, it's got to be easy. He's ripping through it. And maybe after all these years, it is a little bit easier for him. But I guarantee you, he still struggles with story. He still struggles with making things work. He still struggles with bringing it together. And it's that struggle that makes books so valuable. Because there's there's a level of care put into that. I think, you know, like, same thing with an album or a movie or TV show. You can't just rip it out in the same day, you know? You can't just spit it out. And I say that as, as I'm recording a podcast, which is literally just being spit out. That the work and the preparation hasn't gone into. And I think, to be honest, I would say that what I'm doing now is not on the same level as the thing we're talking about doesn't devalue what I'm doing, but it doesn't put it at the same value level. I wouldn't feel the same way about a book that I've finished writing as I do about a podcast episode I've finished. I'm so proud of both, but there's a, a different level of pride, I think. And Once again, I have not finished the book, but I know that when I finished short stories, there's a different level of pride. And as I'm getting older, I'm learning the value of time and care put into things over time. Okay, that's enough uh, philosophizing for now about (laughs) books as a whole. But if I'm going to start this, you've got to understand, like I said, the rambling is a feature and we have just gone on a doozy of a ramble. So let's get to what I have been reading. Let's see where we can go with those things. Let's 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 discover together what the form of this podcast can be. Let's let's discover what we're going to create here. So, I just finished last week. I finished Snow Crash by Neal Stephenson. I've never read it before. You can, I'd say, fifty percent of the time, bet that I haven't read something before. I do reread a lot though I don't reread fiction as often as I reread nonfiction. I finally picked up snow crash after years of hearing everybody from Tim Ferris to Lex Friedman rave about this book. And I finally picked it up and it wasn't what I expected it to be. To be honest, I don't know what I expected it to be. I think there's, you know, terms that are thrown around that, uh, Maybe I never really latch on to terms really well. You know, like cyberpunk would be the term I'm thinking of right now. What the hell does that mean? I don't even know what the hell that means. Blade Runner is cyberpunk. Is it? I don't know. (laughs) I have no idea. I'm sure it has some predefined definition or whatever. But to me, like, it's just sci-fi. There's the sci-fi I like and the sci-fi I don't like. And I like a lot of sci-fi. There's actually... Very little sci-fi that I've read. Maybe I'm just good at choosing, but there's very little that I've read that I haven't liked. Actually, in general, you will discover as we go through books that typically I like most books. It's pretty rare that I get to a book and have a negative opinion of it. I think I'm just... I don't know. I haven't never really thought about this before. But I think maybe I'm just more willing to give myself over to a book, especially fiction. I'm, I'm just less skeptical I'm uh, I'm skeptical always at the beginning of every book. Like, oh, am I going to be able to do this? But there's always a point where it kicks in for me and I'm in. Whether it's Agatha Christie or Neil Stevenson. And I felt that way with this book. At the beginning, I was like, hmm, interesting. There's a lot coming at you at the beginning of the book. I have to admit that I was... Um, I know that this is a topic that people talk a lot about with this book, but like... The hero protagonist of of the novel's name is hero protagonist. I think that's clever. Uh, maybe if you did it now, I don't know, it would be so clever. But like back when he did this, it in a way, it's like it's. I feel like in some way it's connected to meme culture of some sort. But I I think that there's a lot that's going on in this book where he's playing with the stereotypes and the forms. There's a lot where he's really kind of playing with that. So to give a character a name that is literally his stereotype and his form kind of tells you what kind of ride you're in for. Now, another thing that's talked about with this book a lot is that this is where the term, as far as I know, the term metaverse comes from. And the metaverse does play a role in this. But uh, as I said in my my curated weekly newsletter, when I gave a short little blurb about this book, this book is not really about the metaverse. You know, the metaverse is like a location in, in the way that, uh, you know, maybe something happens in a coffee shop, in a book. The book's not about a coffee shop, but the coffee shop plays a role in the sense that it is a place where things happen and there are things related to it. Now, it's a little bit stronger in this book because of the fact that you have um, L. Bob Reif and this whole struggle for who has control of everything is kind of at the core of the book, though I do have to admit it is... For that being like the ultimate like motivation of what's going on here, it really plays a back role, back role, is that a, is that a word? A backseat role to really to what's going on with the characters. And also, I know that there's a lot of criticism about this book because it has what people like to refer to as data dumps. Which is instead of the author working out things throughout the story, they just kind of have a character dump a whole bunch of information on you. And that happens here four or five times, where you have like a pretty much a full chapter of this um, AI librarian giving information to hero. I don't think that criticism is deserved in the sense that. You need that information to make sense of what's going on here. But if he had spread that out in a way that fit into the story more and was less of a data dump, this book would have been epically long, drawn out, and probably really boring. And you would have lost the fast pace that makes this book so much fun to read. So I understand why he did it. And to be honest... Maybe I'm just a weirdo and a nerd, but like the data dumps were some of my favorite parts of the book because at its core, that's really what this book is about. Like I said, it's not really about the metaverse. It's about language, mind viruses, ancient Sumeria, the tower of Babel. That's really what that's about, about connecting that to technology. And even in like in the sense of the speaking in tongues and all that stuff, uh Echolalia, I think is the word, that's not even technology. You know, so it's it's like relating something that's happening biologically to a technology. That I found the most interesting, to the to the point that my my biggest note from reading this book for myself was read about ancient Sumeria because this stuff sounds awesome. This stuff sounds really interesting. And I don't know how much, you know, I don't know at what point the things he's saying about ancient Sumeria uh, cross the line from actual fact, historical fact, into fiction. And what I mean by that is he's connecting it to things happening in the story. So at some point there is a bridge there where he's bridged from fact into fiction. And I'm not sure exactly. Where on the point that is, you know, how much of this stuff about Enki and the mind viruses and these mind programs, these I don't know at what point those are actually not part of actual history and he created something. So I I think that's part of the reason I want to go read it. Like, how, what if like, you know, like 80 or 90% of this stuff is actually. There, when you go to read about ancient Sumeria, that would be really fascinating. Be less fascinating if I went back and found that only like 10% of it is. So as someone who who likes this kind of quote unquote conspiracy stuff, you know, like ancient aliens type stuff, I don't necessarily buy into those things, but I do find them entertaining. It's because and I'm in my forties. I grew up watching Unsolved Mysteries. So like that kind of stuff is just like, it's like handy for me. You know, I still watch it. I watch the new one. I still watch the old one, Unsolved Mysteries that is, because that stuff is just fun to think about. And you can kind of group this in there with that. So there's a, there is the question of how much of this is, is actually legitimately from text on ancient Sumeria. That's really the crux of what the book is about I think which is interesting you know like going back to that term cyberpunk nothing I just talked about there which I said is like the crux of the book really (laughs) seems to fit in with cyberpunk it's almost like what you have here is this um, fictional ancient aliens type theory I'll leave the word conspiracy out this theory And then you took it and said, what happens if I put this in the future? And then that's how you get this story. Whereas I feel like, uh, I don't know, to give something, the word cyberpunk, I feel like you want to start with that aesthetic. Like, this is the point, you know, like, uh, you think about Neuromancer. I think Neuromancer is considered cyberpunk. Once again, not great with these terms. But Neuromancer... It's about that science fiction aspect. It's not just a backdrop. You know, I'm I'm, I'm pushing this around a little bit, maybe a little bit too much, but I, maybe it's because I know a little bit about Neil Stevenson. I know that he writes two kinds of books. He writes these science fiction type books, and then he also writes books that are like historical fiction. I think I have the Baroque Cycle. I have the first book, Quicksilver. Have not read it. I picked it up thinking it was something else because the name Neil Stevenson, I didn't know he wrote these historical type fiction and I got like a, I don't know, like a chapter maybe in and it's like, I think if I remember correctly, it's been a while. I think it's set in like the American revolutionary times. Oh, this is not really my cup of tea. So I, I put it aside. I said, I mean, I'll come back to it. The reason I bring that up is I feel like that same, we're talking about the same writer. So when we talk about this book being about the ancient Sumeria and the power of Babel and all of this, it's that writer, that same writer that writes historical fiction. So yeah, of course, something that's historical fiction will hit the core even of his quote unquote cyberpunk book. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. The stuff that he creates in the cyberpunk world is great, but once I just feel like it's set design. It's not at the core meaning of the book. He does a good job of bridging that to connect that, which is probably the most fascinating part about the book, is about how does ancient Sumeria fit into this metaverse world? I also like the fact that the whole story doesn't take place in the metaverse. And actually at times it's hard to tell sometimes like, are we in the metaverse right now? Or what am I reading? Is this happening in the real world? He goes back and forth between the two and the sometimes characters are doing things in both worlds at the same time. Like hero is doing something in the real world and something in the metaverse at the same time. And it's hard to understand, like, are these happening at the same moment or am I just hearing about them both at this, at this time? So in that way, I would say if if I were to give it like one little, little knock, it'd be that at times it can be a little confusing, but I also think that that plays into what makes this book fun to read, which is, it's a weird thing to say. It's not so confusing that you put it down and you're like, I don't know what's going on, but you're just, it's confusing enough that you have these questions in your mind that drive you forward. So I feel like in a way he does that on purpose. She's like, wait, what's going on here? And you have to read a couple more pages to find out what's going on here, and then you kind of figure it out. I think that's really clever. I, th- I think it's an underrated thing. You know, like we think about, like always, let your you know make make sure your reader knows exactly where you are and what's going on. Maybe not. You know, maybe that rule is not so good because it works really well here. You know, but at the same time, I'm you're looking at these things going on you're like, oh is that are we hearing about a, a future technology or is that something that only exists in this virtual world? And you know, like the motorcycle that hero gets. I wasn't sure at first. I'm like, does he have a motorcycle in the real world? Or did he just get a sweet ride in the metaverse? Wasn't sure. The swords. Is he a great swordsman in the metaverse or in the real world or both? And for a while wasn't clear on that. But once again, these things kept driving me because it's almost like you're trying to unravel a mystery. But there's so much propulsive action forward that you can't get lost for long because everything's always pushing forward. And he does a good job of that by by balancing characters. You're not just with hero. You know, sometimes you're with YT is going to be your your main other character, your second character. I won't say secondary because I think she shares about 50% of the book with hero. Then you also have time that you're spending with Raven, but then you also get time with, uh, you know, uncle Enzo and all these little minor characters. So there's always something it's, it's like, instead of waiting for quieter moments where things could get a little boring, he's always looking for what's the action. What of my what characters are having action right now? Let's go over there. I don't mean like, oh, Kung Fu or gunfight action. Although there's a lot of quote unquote action in this book. I mean, where's the meat right now? Where in the story is the meat? Is the meat with a minor character? All right, let's go to the minor character. Is the meat with a character you've never seen before and you're probably never going to see again? All right, let's go over there. And because of that, there's <laughs> the book is unrelenting. So I think, in fact, the, the data dumps are kind of a, get a little bit of a breather. Uh, you know, like uh, when I read Atlas Shrugged, I loved that book, but one of the big, one of the big flaws with that book is when John Galt gives his big speech. It's a whole chapter of a speech and it's like, I think it's like a hundred pages or more. And it just it completely you know, the book is about trains. It almost just you know, somebody's pulling on that brake on that train and it just stops dead. And that that kind of is a data dump, right? She's giving you a data dump of her theory. And it it changes the pace of the book. It's it's not the best part of the book. I don't feel that way about the data dumps here. Like I said. They feel like breathers. You know, like Shakespeare, what Shakespeare would do is he'd you know, have a uh, like an Hamlet or something, you'd have something very serious going on, and then the next scene you'd go over to here are the two grave diggers digging up the clown. Yorick the clown, and there's this humorous scene. Breather. Just a little bit of breather. Romeo and Juliet, you had little breathers. Falstaff. Every time, anytime you saw Falstaff in, in the Henry plays, breather, a little bit of a breather. It's getting a little intense. Let's take a little bit of a breather here. And I feel like instead of going to comedy, he goes to those data dumps here. Like, let's decompress for a moment. Let's just have a scene with Hero talking to this AI, and the AI is telling him all about ancient Sumeria. Which, once again, it's the heart of the book, so it's it's valuable information. But it's also a little bit of a reprieve before we get back to the glass knives, and the uh, Gatlin. Uh, what is it the what's that guy's name? Fish Eye. I think the guy's name is character's name is Fish Eye. He's got that gun called Reason. I think it's basically like a really high tech Gatlin gun. you have got these crazy weapons. Uh, Uncle Enzo with his straight razor. All of these little, all these little things can get a little intense. The fights, The sword fights. There's two things that I think somebody reading this now would probably notice is number one: there's the scenes where where we're paying attention to this um, anarcho-capitalist world, you know, this world where. There is no government. Everything is private. Everything is like clubs and walled garden societies. You know, like you have uh, Mr. Lee's Hong Kong, which is like a separate nation state. It actually reminds me of uh, Balaji Srinivasan, his most recent book. uh, God, what is it called? The Network State. This book about uh, decentralized government, decentralized the nation's. I haven't read it, but I just know about the book. I was thinking about that when reading this book. Like, oh, this is kind of like a, want to say dystopian vision of that, but it is like not the best, most polished, we're totally proud of this version of that decentralization anarcho-capitalism. Because of that, you see a lot of stereotypes played with. And what I found interesting about this, I think people might criticize that. In particular, you might criticize the South African, I guess, state when Hero goes there because Hero is half Japanese and half black. He goes there and he gets called the N-word. And what I thought was interesting about that scene was it's kind of playing into sort of a stereotype of South Africans as being racist. Uh, which at the time this was written, were a lot closer to when apartheid died. You know, like apartheid was still a lot fresher in Neil Stevenson's mind and in his mouth when writing this book. So it's a little bit understandable why that played in here. But I also thought that it was the reason I thought it was well done was... Because I feel like if you're going to play with this idea of no government really and everything is just kind of like separate conglomerations of people, that of course there's going to be a separate conglomeration of people who are racist. You see that now, even when we have a unified government in the United States, you see people that go and buy land and live on that land and pile up guns and I don't know, make racist jokes all day. I don't know what the hell they do. Plan to overthrow the government. You see that already. So if you took away the concept of a United States government, of course those things would group together. And of course, if he walked into that, of course he's going to get called those things. Because it, it also feels like in that scene that these people were also, I don't know, maybe it was just my reading of the scene, but I also felt like in that scene, they were sort of playing into their own stereotype. Almost like it felt like these guys felt like they needed to use that language. It's, it's hard to explain why I got that feeling. and Maybe just be my own personal bias bringing into the book. But I think it's good that he showed those things because while this isn't a utopian world, it's not specifically a dystopian world. It's just kind of a messy world that we're seeing. So in order to show that messy world, you have to show maybe places where things are working kind of okay. You know, like the the whole um, the whole mafia thing with the pizza is hilarious. Um, especially I'm I'm half Italian, so I know it's playing into a racial stereotype about my people. Two of them, in fact, mafia and pizza, but they're generally from for the most part they're generally one of the parts that's working well. They're, you know, like they're one of the safer areas of this book. So you have to show also the other end where it's like, this is kind of the messier end. This can also happen. So anybody that criticizes the book for that, I think maybe should re examine the book a little bit more. The other thing that maybe does deserve the criticism that I was a little bit, un, I don't want to say a little bit, I was pretty uncomfortable with it. So YT is a 15-year-old girl, 15. And there's a part where she has to strip naked, and I was like, ah, you know, whatever. She, it's kind, he's kind of playing with, a, you know, like a old dudes are pervs thing, right? But then later when when she has sex, I'm not going to say with who, try to avoid some spoilers in these things, although you should always expect that I'm not gonna, not gonna prevent myself from talking about something if I want to talk about it. But when she has sex, it's, I mean, it's not a super graphic scene, but it is graphic, you know, like the butt squeezing and like all this stuff. Fine, if it was two adults, but in my mind, knowing that it was a 15-year-old girl, eh, it was a little weird. I'm not gonna lie. I, uh, I was a little squeamish during that section. Then I heard someone, I think I I was watching a YouTube video. I tend to like look up uh, opinions by other people after I read a book just to see if I, you know, there's something I missed in a book. Like, oh, shit, I didn't think about that, you know. So I think it was a YouTube video and someone was talking about what I had already mentioned before about how he's playing with forms here. And stereotypes, not only, like I said just a second ago, about racial stereotypes, but he's playing with um, cyberpunk or science fiction stereotypes as well. And one of those things this person said that he's probably playing with here is this tendency to sexualize, you know, the Internet to sexualize younger girls in specifics. Uh, You know, especially, I think, was this book written in the 90s, I want to say? Yeah, I think it was 1992. This book was written, so the internet was a different place. And the internet was a lot of chat rooms back then. From my memory, I wasn't on the internet a lot back in 1992. But when we were, it was like AOL and you know CompuServe and stuff like that. And there was a lot of a lot of dudes pretending that they were young girls to talk to young girls on the internet. Because you know, anonymity was pretty much everything back then. So, when I take that into the context of the time period that he wrote the book, it makes more sense that, yeah, maybe he is playing with that. But at the same time, I don't know. I have to give a little criticism in the sense that, like, you might be playing with that stereotype, but you're also playing into it, you know? I just feel like it's it's a little bit over the line for me. And that, you uh, know, I'm not a super sensitive reader, and it's not that I don't... I'm not a prude, but it just it wasn't. It was one part of the book that I was like, I don't. I would have trouble handing this book off to somebody, knowing that they're going to read this scene. It's funny. I didn't. I didn't think I felt as strongly about that as I did until I started talking about it. It really it bothers me. But at the same time, I would say this is still a great book. You know, some and some. Sometimes things that you like are flawed. Like I said. Atlas Shrugged, love it. John Galt's speech, could have done without it, or please maybe relegate it to six, seven paragraphs. (laughs) So, that's Snow Crash. That's, That's kind of my thoughts on Snow Crash. I don't think I have anything else to say about Snow Crash. Well, actually, one other thing. I do think it's interesting how small of a role the Snow Crash virus really plays into the book. It makes me think that maybe it's not the best title. It's a great title, but it's not the best title to capture what's happening in the story. It's really, in my memory, which is just last week, it's really not that big of a deal. I mean, it plays an important role, but it's not like... I don't think it it encapsulates what the book is about. I'm really big on that with titles. There's a catchy title. Yes, I understand catchy titles are important, but I'm really a big fan of the titles that when you read it, like, oh, yeah, that captures the exact meaning of the book. That, you know, like you read the title before you read the book. You don't know what, we're talking about fiction here too. You don't know what the book's about before you read it, That you know, like snow crash. But then if you go in and you get to the end of the book, If that was, if that phrase played into the key meaning of the book, that's the best kind of title for me. like I think about, this is a nonfiction book, but I think about uh, Joan de Leon's The Year of Magical Thinking, which is about the death of her husband. And The Year of Magical Thinking, that sounds like a pretty catchy title. What is that about? And then you read the book and then you go back and you look at the title and you're like oh, and it just makes it a little more heartrending, you know, like the, what is the year of magical thinking? It's the year of like this limbo period after somebody dies, this magical thinking that they're going to come back so it makes it even more powerful and actually the, the edition of the book that I bought of that book it just has the the plain text, but then certain letters are highlighted, just a couple letters. And then, you know, you read the book, you don't think about it. It's like, oh, it's just a stylistic choice. And then you go back and you look, you know, Joan D.D. on the year of magical thinking, and you look at the letters that are highlighted and they spell J O H N, which was the name of her, her husband. And then that just breaks your heart. Not part of a title, but, you know, once again, I ramble. <laughs> What else am I... This is, I said I finished Snow Crash last week. What other fiction am I picking up? You know, uh, before I say that, one of the other things that I'm, a, I'm hoping will be a result of this is that I will be more consistent with my reading of fiction because I tend to get spotty with fiction. I get wrapped up so much in nonfiction that... I will read fiction in like bursts. So maybe this will help me to stay more consistent. You know, at least picking up fiction books a couple times a week. Right now I'm, I'm in this pattern where I'm, like I said, I'm listening to audiobook versions of fiction. And what I've been doing to build this into my day on a regular daily basis is that when I walk my dog in the evening, I listen to the fiction audiobook that I'm on. So this keeps me in the book every day. And that's been working really well. So I'm hoping that will continue. And when I say I've been doing this, it's really just for the last two books. You know, Half a Snow Crash, I did this way. And then I'm doing it with the book that I'm reading now, which is Fellowship of the Ring. Yes, I'm finally picking up The Lord of the Rings. It's been sitting there for a long time as something like, yes, I should probably read those eventually. They're so thick. Uh And I've read The Hobbit multiple times in my life. Uh, You know, once when I was young, and then uh, once probably about six or seven years ago. And The Hobbit's okay. I don't think The Hobbit's that great, to be honest. Good. But there's just some parts of it that it's like, you know, if you've read The Hobbit, you remember, I don't even remember who they're going to visit Um, Bilbo and. The dwarves are going to visit, and and they keep going up to this person's house in pairs of two, and it takes like two chapters for these damn dwarfs to get to the damn house, and it's just so tedious and so boring that, in all honesty, I think it ruined the whole book for me. So. I appreciate The Hobbit, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a fan of The Hobbit. I'm a fan of the idea of The Hobbit. Not terribly a fan of the movies of The Hobbit. Which, seriously, how do you make three epically long movies about a super short book? Yeah. So, probably because of all that baggage, I was like, yeah, I'll get to The Lord of the Rings one day. Someday, and what I really expected when I picked up these books is for it to be dense and to be honest, boring. And I was not disappointed in reading the introduction. The introduction to the book was exactly what I was expecting. telling me this elf begat this elf, you know, like almost like reading that that verse of the Bible, this person begat this person, that begat this person, that begat this person. That begat this person. It was kind of like that, you know, like these two dwarves are going up to the house, and now these two dwarves are going up to the house, and now these two. Okay, how about y'all just walk together? (laughs) Give me a break. Or just tell me, it took a long time for them all to get up there. They went up in tears of two. I was expecting that. And the introduction was very. I guess my perception of Tolkien as a writer was that he's like. A history author who happens to be telling fantasy. And there's a, I don't know if they use the word foreword or not, but there is a foreword before the introduction, which is Tolkien talking about writing the book. And he talks about how people try to connect it to an allegory to World War II. And he says it's not really valid in the sense that I started this before World War II. And the whole reason I started this book was just because I wanted to have a medium to explore elven language. Which, to be honest, is not the most exciting thing to hear when you're about to pick up a book. Like, Not like, oh, I was driven by these characters and I really wanted to tell this story. Or this horrible war was going on and I felt like I had to exercise that. And so I created this fiction. No, you're telling me you wrote the book because you you created this crazy elven language and you needed a way to use that elven language. Eh, not the most appealing thing to say. But, you know, it's written as a letter, so that part's kind of interesting. But then it goes into the introduction and it becomes exactly what I was talking about. It starts to feel like fantasy as history. It feels heavy and I'm like, "Oh god. What have I done? This is what it's going to be like. This is going to be a slog." And then it goes into chapter one, and we're in the Shire, and it's Bilbo, and Frodo, and Gandalf. And it's not like that at all. It's really fun, and it's really enjoyable. Um, the The audiobook version I'm reading is read by Andy Serkis, who is the guy who played Gollum in the movies. He's really great. He does different voices for everyone. He's is a great narrator for this. So it's just so much fun. I think I'm only in in chapter 2, maybe 3. We're still in the Shire. Uh, Bilbo's gone. Frodo has the ring. I think the last thing I read was uh, the scene where Gandalf is telling Frodo about the ring. And how they have to destroy the ring. And he throws it in the fireplace. And yeah, I think the last thing I read was Sam has been eavesdropping. And as punishment, Sam, you're going to go with Mr. Frodo. And I, I'm i delighted. I admit I was skeptical. I was afraid. I thought the book was going to be tedious and maybe it will become at certain points later. But right now, it is a delight. It is so much fun to read. The characters are so alive and it reminds me of the parts about The Hobbit that are enjoyable. The part of parts about The Hobbit that probably make The Hobbit stick around. Though I would say that the reason that The Hobbit is still relevant is because of its connection to The Lord of the Rings. Had he never written The Lord of the Rings, I'm not sure The Hobbit would necessarily maintain uh, the place in the literary world that it has now. Because it's, like I said, it's a good book. But it's not that great of a book. I'm sure that somebody is uh, evacuating their bowels right now hearing that. (laughs) Sorry. It's my opinion. It's my podcast. But I am really enjoying Lord of the Rings. And if this pace and this feel and this vibe continues through those big, long, thick books, then I understand. I think I'm going to have an understanding of why... I'm just going to call it this book because I do know that when Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, he wrote it as one book. And the publishers were like, you're crazy. We are not publishing one book that long. You got to break it up. And that's why I can't say this about the books because I haven't read it. But that's why the movies, which are paced the same as the books, as far as I understand, end in such weird places. You know, like, Fellowship of the Ring. Okay, we'll be back. I remember watching that movie in the theater and getting to the end of that movie and just being like, uh, that's it? <laughs> like, this is where we're stopping? You know, it didn't have a conclusion. It's just like, eh, done. Come back later for more. That feeling, I remember that feeling watching uh, watching Empire Strikes Back. Having that feeling. Like, whoa, it's, oh, there's more, this isn't the end. There's more to come. But the, I think Empire Strikes Back has more of an ending than The Fellowship of the Ring, which is just kind of like, it's almost like a commercial break. Done. Not even a cliffhanger. And that's because the book was broken up into three parts, from what I understand. So I'll probably go back and forth between referring to them as the books and the book. Typically, I will tell you this, when I read book series, I'm, I'm not good at it. (laughs) You know, like I pick up a book series and I read the first book and I go, cool. And then I sometimes never go and read the second one or the third one. Like Harry Potter. I've read, I think the first three, definitely the first two. I may have read the first three. I think what is number three, Prisoner of Azkaban. I don't remember if I read that or not. Let's see, what other series have I done that with? Uh, I've read the first Game of Thrones book. Uh, Is that one called A Game of Thrones? I think that's the name of the first book. I read that, and I didn't read anything after that. (laughs) The only series I know that I have read uh, at the time that I read them, I read all of it, Then things were added later was the Ender series by Orson Scott Card. I read the first four books, which I think was uh, Ender's Game. Uh, The second one is Speaker of the Dead, which was the best one in my opinion. Then it's called Xenophile, Xenophobe, Xena, Xena something. I can't remember the name of that book. And then Children of the Mind. I think that's the right order. I read those four all together in a row. And I don't think there was, they didn't have like Ender's Shadow and all that other stuff at the time. So that was like, that was it. I think that's the only series that I've done like that. The reason I bring this up is I think this is going to be different with Lord of the Rings because it was written as one book. It's It's going to be more difficult for me to get to the end of Fellowship and go I'll pick up Two Towers one day because it doesn't have the story doesn't come to a conclusion at the end of the book. I guess let's go back to that metaphor. We talked about earlier about the the connection between television and books. When I think about books as, as a series of books, I think about it as episodes. And when you think about the series as a whole, I think about it as like a story arc or a season arc Like, for example, uh, Veronica Mars. Look at the the first season or the second season of Veronica Mars. the, The original seasons. The first one is probably the most cohesive. You have this one case, one story arc. But then you have individual episodes. And each episode comes to a conclusion, but it doesn't come to the conclusion of the overarching story of the season. Books like... Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and not Lord of the Rings Game of Thrones are like that in the sense that they have this overarching story, you know, Voldemort, this battle with this Voldemort and who is Harry? This, 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 the overarching theme that doesn't come to the conclusion at the end of the first book doesn't come to conclusion at the end of the second book. It comes to the conclusion after, what is it? Eight books. But the story, the individual arc of each book comes to a conclusion. This part of the story is done. This part of the story is done. So you can walk away from it and not be left with that feeling of this lingering like, oh, it's incomplete. And I think that will be different with The Lord of the Rings because, like I said, I don't think the books are going to be like episodes. Or they will have their own individual endings. Well, we'll see. We'll see. That might be wrong. And uh, I guess we'll have to figure it out. So, so far. This is how I think things are going to go. This is what it's going to be like to listen to me talk about books. I just looked at the timer. Incredibly, I'm at exactly one hour right now. Impressive, right? Mm, It's almost like I'm a professional. So... I don't know if you like this and you want to hear more about the books that I'm reading and hear me ramble the way that I've rambled, because once again, it is a feature. That is the way this will be done without notes, top of my head, sometimes not remembering details, sometimes, uh, like in the case of that book by Orson Scott Card, not remembering the title. Xenocide. That's it. I finally remember Xenocide. That's the way it's going to be. So if that sounds interesting, subscribe and uh, pass it on to some other bookworms or people you think should be bookworms because, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of what you're supposed to ask people at the end of a podcast episode, right? So, uh, I'll be back when, when I'm back. Like I said, I don't know if this is going to be weekly or what. We'll discover that as we go along. Thanks for uh, sticking around. And, uh, Go read a book or something, huh? (laughs) ¶¶